podcast was brought to you by Hearing the Voice. It was recorded on the 16th of June 2016 and features Professor Chris Cook on hearing voices in the Christian mystical tradition. If you'd like to hear more about our research into voice hearing or just keep in touch with us, you can visit our website hearingthevoice.org or tweet us at Hearing Voice. I've decided to focus in for this talk on Christian mysticism for a number of reasons. One is that uh, it's a subject I've long been interested in, particularly in relation to psychiatry, although I'm not saying very much about that this evening. Um, it's an area of overlap between theology and uh, social sciences, which I think is, is fascinating and much under-researched in terms of the interdisciplinary engagement. And it's one I've been reading about for quite a few years. So. Um, it happens to have great relevance to hearing the voice, and I hope that you'll agree at the end of this talk that it's uh, an area in which we could do more work together. I'm also aware that we've focused in, in a lot of our work as a team over the last few years on two particular characters, Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich. And there are many, many others in the tradition that we haven't thought about at all. So this is, in some ways, um, a more superficial overview, but, but I hope you won't feel it's simplistic in terms of looking more widely at the tradition and thinking about the aspects of Christian mysticism that might be scientifically and theologically interesting to our concern with voice hearing. We could spend a whole evening, indeed a whole week, on attempts to define mystical experience and mysticism as a topic and of course I haven't got the time to do that but for want of a better place to start um, why not home in straight away on William James who's frequently cited still 114 years later as um, someone who has something interesting to say about the nature of mysticism even if you don't agree with him. And his four marks of mystical experience in the Varieties of Religious Experience, published in 1902, were uh, ineffability, noetic quality, transiency, and passivity. And I think three of those obviously have relevance to voice hearing. Voices, for most people who hear them, have a noetic quality. They feel that something is imparted. They may not like it. It may be negative in content. But there's something said that... Um, imparting of knowledge in some significant way. They're transient and they're a passive phenomenon, so you, you don't actively decide you're going to hear a voice now, mostly, some people might, but mostly it's something that happens whether you want it or not. The interesting thing, I think, for us is that mystical experience is generally said to be ineffable, which of course is almost the exact opposite of a voice hearing experience. A voice speaks words in the language of the person who hears them and therefore almost by definition it's not ineffable, it's something that can be given verbal description. Whereas mystical experience, according to James, is something that people find very difficult to put into words. They always struggle to explain adequately and having spilt three or four pages of ink on trying to give you their account, they end up saying and I, I, I haven't really done justice, I haven't really conveyed what I was wanting to say. So maybe we'll come back to that later. Many people have disagreed with William James about those four marks, one of them being Evelyn Underhill, who felt he hadn't done justice to describing the experience. But even Evelyn Underhill came to a conclusion remarkably similar to James, that mysticism is about the art of establishing what she called conscious relation with the absolute. In other words, it's some kind of direct experience, allegedly direct experience, of contact with the divine. And I suppose the closest I've got to a definition that I'm going to employ for the purposes of this paper uh, is the one employed by Bernard McGinn in his uh, monumental ongoing uh, treatise on the history of Christian mysticism this was in the first volume, we're now up to volume, uh, oh, that's a good question, I think we're up to volume five out of seven. Uh, it was originally going to be a four volume work and it's still not finished. 
25 years after he started it. But he, he suggested that the mystic element in Christianity is that part of its belief and practices that concerns the preparation for, the consciousness of, and the reaction to what can be described as the immediate or direct presence of God. So again, it's purportedly a direct encounter with God. And he's, um, like me, interested primarily in the Christian tradition. We could have similar conversations around Islamic mysticism, around the Asian and Eastern religions, around uh, neo-paganism. There, there are parallel conversations to be had in all of the world's major faith traditions. And indeed, a lot of mystical experience that's talked about today that's not anchored in any of those uh, faith traditions, but is untethered, for want of a better term. I think for us a number of things are, are interesting. Firstly, mystical experiences from all of these traditions, not least Christianity, frequently includes visions, voices, ecstatic states and other phenomena, but it's not defined by any of those as I've just suggested. And indeed there are many examples we could have discussed this evening, Thomas Merton being a good one that comes to mind, where there's no voice, there's no vision in the sense of any perceptual experience, um, no ecstatic state, but nonetheless something psychologically distinct happens which is usually referred to by the person concerned or by others subsequently as being mystical. So we have this anomaly that on the one hand visions and voices are frequently associated and seem to be an integral part of the experience, but on the other hand they're not necessary Many people have mystical experiences without them. There's much discussion about distinguishing mystical experience from other religious experiences. I'd be interested in your views, Charles, as a psychologist on this. Um, some psychologists of religion do distinguish between mystical experience and other religious experience. I'm, the more and more I think about this, the less convinced I am that I know how to do it. But um, there are classic papers like the one by Margolis and Ellison which separate out mystical experience from other um, experiences, including visionary and voice-hearing experiences. So some people think that you can do that. And there's certainly a view that you can distinguish mystical experience from psychopathology, although there are also people like Bill Forward, Bill Forward and, uh, um, uh, and others who suggest that actually there are difficult cases where you can't distinguish mystical experience from psychopathology. So people argue that one both ways. And as if all of that didn't make it interesting enough, we have this complex relationship between mystical experience and mystical text. Complex in the sense that many of these texts are ancient and so we don't have modern accounts of, uh, critical accounts of the phenomenology. But also complex because a lot of scholars of mysticism would argue that when the experience is written down, actually the text becomes almost a part of the experience. You can't disentangle the underlying experience from the experience of writing the text. The two are inextricably mixed up with each other. So even if, like Nathan, has had a mystical experience yesterday and he's been writing about it for us, let's say, um, we, we can talk to Nathan, we, we can uh, interrogate him about the nature of the experience, we can ask him all sorts of difficult questions. But by the time we come to do that, the text that he has produced has become an integral part of the experience himself, itself. We can't disentangle the two. We can't have the experience free from the text or the text free from the experience. The two are intimately related to each other. Stepping back from all of that for a moment, I've, I've been reading a lot of these texts now over quite a number of years, and it seems to me that there are two broad groups of experience that we might be interested in. Now, this is not um, uh, a mutually exclusive and uh, jointly comprehensive classificatory system, so please don't take me to task on this. But on the one hand, you have voices associated with discrete episodes in people's lives. So classically in Christian writings, these tend to be conversion experiences, like St Paul on the road to Damascus, or a calling to a particular way of life, like Mother, Mother Teresa's call to serve the poor in Calcutta, or some kind of crisis in life 
which is associated at least sometimes with a voice hearing experience. So we've got all of those and for many of these people it's a one-off or it happens two or three times around this particular episode and for the next 20 or 30 years they don't hear voices. Maybe they never hear voices again. Then we have another group um, which do to some extent overlap with the first group but these are what I've called conversational and in your book um, Charles you refer to them I think as dialogical um, experiences of voice hearing where people engage in conversation let's say it's with God so there's my voice and there's the voice of God and in prayer I might say God I don't understand why or pose a question of some kind and the voice comes back with an answer to that and I might then reply in turn and the voice might reply again and so we have an ongoing conversation about a particular topic and in some instances in the Christian literature these conversations go on over many years or at least they're quite extended and detailed conversations about particular topics and I think that's a rather different kind of thing now the two groups do overlap a little bit and I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive but but they are quite different kinds of phenomena and there are clear examples of one which aren't the other and vice versa but it's a bit more complicated than that because it's not just a conversation with the voice of God if indeed it is a conversation um, you get examples in the tradition of conversations with spirits angels demons and saints to mention just the main categories and of course um, all of these voices do appear in the other group as well so we can have uh, a crisis experience for example precipitated by hearing the voice demonic voices a good example might be Marjorie Kemp in the early account of her puerperal psychosis if that's what it was but whatever the episode associated with childbirth at the beginning of the book of Marjorie Kemp she hears these demonic voices which she doesn't hear later in life and um, they're particularly unpleasant and distressing and there are many other examples of that kind and of course you have a more conversational approach sometimes associated with uh, Christian conversion stories and calls to a particular way of life. So as I've said earlier, these are not mutually ex exclusive groups. They, they are overlapping in, in a variety of ways. And I think before we get stuck into the historic literature, it's interesting to look at some recent examples of each. And um, I've got at least one of each that we might want to look at. This, this is not a widely cited example and it's in some ways quite a controversial one I imagine that Nathan coming from the US is probably very familiar to you but Susan Atkins was a member of the group uh, associated with Charles Manson who was convicted he and, and his accomplices were convicted of a series of uh, particularly vicious and cruel murders um, in the 1980s 1970s 70s and Susan uh, was Manson's girlfriend, uh, sexual partner, and was known at the time by members of the group as Sexy Sadie, which perhaps tells you a lot about her and about the way in which she was viewed by other members of the group. She was convicted um, of all but one of the murders, I think seven out of eight of the murders she was convicted, Manson and the others along with her convicted of all of them. And, um, she served time in prison she died in 2009 in prison despite various uh, attempts to get parole and to be released and during her time in prison she underwent what she describes in her autobiography as a conversion experience she becomes a born-again Christian within the evangelical tradition of of conversion experiences and here is what she says in her autobiography she's a bit like Augustine very different style of literature but a bit like Augustine she's struggling you know do I become a Christian don't I she's weighing up the pros and cons in her own mind she's having an inner conversation if you like with herself about whether this is something she wants to do or not and she asks herself the question am I asleep no I was fully awake I turned again onto my back behold I stand at the door and knock did I hear someone say that I don't know but the statement was there all else stood still and so she says okay if you're there come on in total stillness 
All right, I'll come in, but you must open the door. This was incredible. I talked back to the voice. I assume I spoke in my thoughts, but I'm not certain. What door? You know what door and where it is, Susan. Just turn around and open it and I will come in. Suddenly, as though on a movie screen, there in my thoughts was a door. It had a handle. I took hold of it and pulled. It opened. The whitest, most brilliant light I had ever seen poured over me. And from that point in the narrative, she describes an affective change of heart. She um, talks herself about herself and about her um, experience of what she's done and the situation in which she finds herself in completely different terms. Now, many people at the time were very sceptical of this and said, oh, yes, you know, there she is, uh, a bit like Myra Hindley and the Moors murders. You know, a lot of people could not believe that someone as evil as this might have had a real change of heart. But she held to this story of um, conversion until her death. Uh, she remained in prison uh, until she died. And uh, according to her own account, it was a major turning point. And it's associated with this inner dialogue, which sort of wanders in and out of um, the realm of thought. At points, she's not clear herself whether it's something outside of herself or whether it's something from within her own thoughts. And whatever we think about her sincerity, we can, we can dismiss it if we wish. It's not unlike many other Christian conversion stories that one could tell of a similar kind. And it's therefore, I think, uh, an interesting one to use for our present purpose. So that's one. It's dialogical, it's largely inward, but there's a question about the extent to which it comes from outside of herself. Here's a very different person. If, if everyone wants to condemn Susan Atkins as being evil, here's the opposite end of the human spectrum. Uh, I don't even have to put the name at the top of the slide because everyone knows who this is. This is Mother Teresa. She writes in her papers, I don't think it was actually from the journal, but um, it's from her own hand. She writes on Tuesday, the September the 10th, 1946, 10 years before I was born. <laughs> it was on this day in 1946, in the train to Darjeeling, that God gave me the call within a call. So she'd already experienced a sense of calling to the religious life. She was a nun. A call to satiate the thirst of Christ by serving him in the poorest of the poor. The voice kept pleading. She writes in various places about the voice. She doesn't ever give us a clear phenomenological description about what she means by that, but she's very explicit. It's the voice, and it's something that comes from outside of herself. The voice kept pleading, come, come, carry me into the holes of the poor. Come, be my light. And when asked to give account of this by a bishop later on, um, she's very clear that she heard a voice, that it was a distinct experience, that she doesn't base her sense of calling entirely upon it, but that it was um, associated with her sense of vocation to serve the poor in Calcutta, as we all know that she eventually did. So there, there are two um, discrete episodes of a particular kind, calling and conversion, which are very characteristic of um, a genre of Christian literature that spans everything from evangelical born-again Christianity through to the, the Catholicism of someone like Mother Teresa. Here's another account um, from the US, whoops, come back, um, of uh, a consultant surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon. So those of you, probably not anyone who isn't in this room, but anyway, uh, those who are not familiar, very concrete, down-to-earth folks who talk about things in practical terms and who use hammers and saws in the operating theatre. So there's no nonsense. Um, here's uh, an orthopaedic surgeon who's had a particular experience, context of, of a near-death experience, and she's written about it in a book. Um, it's been widely publicised in television, on the media. There's loads and loads of stuff about it on the web including this YouTube clip, and I'm just going to give you the first five minutes of her fascinating story of this near-death experience, uh, which I think speaks for itself. My name is Mary Neal, and I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon. And in 1999, I went to Chile in South America with my husband, and we went on a kayaking trip, and 
had a wonderful week of boating. Uh, the final day of kayaking, though, I was pinned in a waterfall and drowned. And while I was drowning, I was comforted by God very physically and very completely. And after I drowned, I was joyfully greeted by other spirits who knew me, who I had known for an eternity. And they took me to heaven. Many people can sense God's presence without being hit on the head. But apparently, I'm more of a concrete person than that because for me, even though I was raised in Sunday school, I was raised in a church, I think I have the typical experience of church being a Sunday thing. And during the week, you didn't really think about God or think about God's impact on your life. When I drowned, I was very comfortable and very comforted. I found that I knew I was going to have a problem as soon as I crested the waterfall and realized that there was no outlet. I knew that I was going to have a problem and the boat was pinned and the water then completely covered me and I tried all of the usual things to free myself and free the boat and none of them worked. I didn't ask to be saved. I didn't ask for anything in particular other than God's will be done. And at that moment, I was overcome with the most physical sensation of being comforted and held almost like you would comfort and rock a small baby. And I thought about my husband and I thought about my young children. And again and again and again, I was reassured that they would be fine. I would be fine. Everything was fine. And then I felt the boat tip a little bit and the current which had ripped off my helmet and my life jacket was slowly sucking my body out of the boat over the cockpit of the boat and as that was happening I could feel my legs breaking and I was wondering and thinking about which bones might be breaking and which ligaments were ripping my body or my spirit peeled off of my body, and then as I felt my body sink with the current, I was free. I was greeted by a group of the most joyous spirits, and these were spirits that I couldn't identify as, oh gee, there's my father or my babysitter. Because each of these spirits were more than just that one person. All colors in one at the same time. And they were so filled with love. And that's true of everything having to do with heaven and every angel I talked to there's this all-encompassing sense of love and uh, joy. So they uh, greeted me, and we communicated, although not in English, not with our mouths. It, it was a form of communication that made me truly, truly understand how God can speak to people of different languages and everyone understands them in their own language. And so we traveled down this path and we didn't walk with our feet. Uh, we just moved. 
It'd be fun to watch the whole thing, but <laughs> I don't have time. So um, you can enjoy that later on if you want. I think there are a variety of interesting things about um, Mary's account of this experience. One is, of course, she's a very intelligent woman and she's able to articulate it very clearly, which is really helpful. Um, another thing is the interesting way in which she's, within a short space of time, both able to reflect on the anatomy of the orthopedic experience that she's undergoing, but, but also able to articulate this um, rather mystical experience that she's engaged in. And to I think described very neatly the way in which she's having a conversation with these spiritual beings that she um, seems to be encountering, but that also it's not in language as we normally understand. It's, it's ineffable, but it's also verbal. I think it, it neatly frames that kind of um, experience that she's having. So in some ways, near-death experiences are unusual. She's hypoxic. She's uh, presumably... Um, you know, high circulating levels of adrenaline and noradrenaline and all these kinds of things going on. So hormonally, physiologically, very unusual biological state to be in. But um, not completely different to mystical experiences of a very different kind. All of those are of the discrete sort of episodic kind I mentioned at the beginning. Um, the other sort, the dialogical, the conversational experiences voice hearing, take many forms, but one form that I'm interested in is described in the literature by Simon Dean and Roland Littlewood, also paper that Simon and I wrote together, and of course Tanya Lerman's important work on um, conversation in prayer with God in the vineyard churches in North America, most notably in her book When God Talks Back, but also in a series of related articles that she's published on this. And in all of these um, studies, it's clear that this kind of conversational uh, experience of, of talking with God is, is not that uncommon. It might only occur once or twice in some people's lifetimes, but there's quite a few people in Pentecostal and charismatic churches that have had this kind of experience. And for some of them, it's ongoing. For some of them, it's a much more regular event. So all of the kinds of experiences that we might be interested in in the historic literature of the Christian mystical tradition are actually ongoing today. There are recent examples that we could give in every case. But I am interested in the way in which the tradition has um, given an account of these experiences. And this is my working list, which we discussed at Voice Club last Friday. It's very much a work in progress. There are two or three names that I'm on the verge of adding. There might be some I will take away. And I'm always very keen to receive new suggestions if you know good accounts that I can put on the list. But I'm trying to put together a representative um, list across history of different kinds of experience from different places and times. And, um, and, the, and this is the list as it stands. And some places and cultural contexts and theological traditions are more difficult to get examples from than others. So I'm not the only person that seems to find it difficult to get good examples from the first millennium, for example. I haven't got anyone on the list at the moment between the 4th century and the 10th century. Um, and partly that's because I'm being quite strict with myself. I want decent accounts, either preferably autobiographical accounts or at least good first-hand um, accounts from people who knew the individual concerned. And those are difficult to get from that time. But um, even if I weren't being so strict with myself, actually it is difficult to find good accounts from some periods in history. Whereas you get to the 13th, 14th century and you're tripping over yourself with dozens of examples. There are many more that I could add to the list than I've got on there at the moment. And it's difficult to add Protestant examples, partly because Protestantism seems to have been suspicious of mystical experience, of part of the nature of the Reformation, that this was something that was treated with suspicion. But it's not just that. Um, there are good examples to be had from the Protestant tradition. They're somewhat different. They're, um, they're framed differently in the text, and they're not so easy to identify, perhaps because Protestants are more reluctant to um, identify themselves with some, something that 
for some people seems so blatantly Catholic. Anyway, we can come back to the list later. I'm just plucking out a few significant examples by way of illustrating the breadth of this tradition. And I think we have to start with Anthony of Egypt because he was so influential on so many other figures since. Even a thousand years later, nuns in convents around Europe are citing Antony of Egypt as a seminal example. Sister so-and-so's experience was just like Antony in his combat with the demons, would, would be the kind of thing that they would say. And Antony was read by, or the account of Antony's experiences, written by Athanasius. Of course, this helps. We have a famous theologian of the time writing the life of Antony. So we have um, a fairly contemporaneous account by a very well-respected theologian. Um, this text circulated widely throughout Europe and was read by influential people like Augustine, who were uh, profoundly impacted themselves by what they read. So it became the model for mystical experience, what became known as mystical experience ever since. And widely portrayed in Christian iconography as well as in uh, written literature, here we have a typical example of Antony in combat with the demons. You'll see they're clubbing him. There are a couple of places within the text where he describes himself as not just hearing and seeing the demonic entities, but actually um, feeling himself physically assaulted. So we might say in psychological parlance, tactic, tactile hallucinations of encounter with these beings, as well as visual and uh, auditory experiences. And um, a fascinating verbal description to go with it. As if succumbing, the devil no longer attacked by means of thoughts, which is how his encounter starts, for the crafty one had been cast out. But using now a human voice, he said, so apparently now out loud, I tricked many and I vanquished many, but just now waging my attack on you and your labours, as I have upon many others, I was too weak. So even the devil has to admit that Antony is a fearsome opponent in spiritual combat. And it's in the nature of the hagiography that um, Athanasius employs here, not copying others, of course. Here, this is an original genre of uh, explanation about what's been going on. Um, Athanasius putting our hero on a pedestal, if you like, um, even the devil has been vanquished by Antony because he's such a fearsome spiritual opponent. But the combat is in terms of voices, of thoughts, of physical blows, of visual, visionary experiences. And, and Antony overcomes them all. Now, Antony inspired many other people to go and live in the desert in, in the most incredibly inhospitable conditions um, for uh, the best part of a century. And um, there are many other examples we could give from, from the tradition, but, but Antony's account is, is the first. As I say, Antony was read by Augustine, and Augustine was read by everyone. And so indirectly, Antony became terribly important. I'm pretty sure Augustine didn't have any experiences of voice hearing, other than the, hearing the voice of the child playing in the garden next door, which presumably was a human child who really existed. He never seems to have heard voices without a speaker. He did have two or three mystical experiences of his own, which are widely discussed, um, extensively discussed in the literature. Here's one of them, they're tantalizingly brief. In an instant of awe, my mind attained to the sight of the God who is. Then at last, he always speaks in, in conversation with the divine uh, as though in prayer. Then at last, I caught sight of your invisible nature as it is known through your creatures. And we're left wondering exactly what the nature, nature of this visual encounter was. But based on his own experiences and perhaps those of other people he knew as well, um, he went on to classify visionary experiences, not locutionary voices, but visionary experiences as corporeal, spiritual and intellectual. And this classificatory system was employed by dozens and dozens of commentators subsequently uh, in application to voices as well as visionary experiences and indeed other mystical experiences as well. This important text is from the literal meaning of Genesis and um, essentially it gives us three kinds of voices or visions. The one being 
like me talking to you now, so it's out loud or you actually see it, you might have um, insight into the fact it's a vision or a, a voice of an unusual kind, and there's nothing actually there, but you can see it with your bodily eyes or hear it with your bodily ears. Then you have the more imaginative version, which he calls spiritual, which is slightly confusing for us, but um, that which in your mind's eye you can see or hear. And then finally, the intellectual, which for Augustine is the highest and most reliable form of encounter with the divine. This is not imaginative, this is not visual or out loud. This is something ineffable, something beyond words, something beyond image. And this is the most reliable form of encounter. Only God can provide this. Um, you're much less likely to be, be deceived by the devil or by your own thoughts getting in and deluding you in, in some way. And as I say, it wasn't originally employed in relation to voices, but everyone since has um, fallen back on this as a sort of basic framework for thinking. I say everyone since, there have been alternative variations on, on the, the system, on the taxonomy, but it has been hugely influential. So I'm skipping a thousand years and um, jumping forward to some more particularly influential accounts, Francis of Assisi being one of them. And in Voice Club last week, we looked at one of the earliest accounts of um, an experience of hearing voice, which for Francis was relatively unusual, not that he had no more experiences of hearing voices for the rest of his life. He had two or three or four, but um, he wasn't engaging on this on a daily basis as some other figures were. This is the important one. This is the one that's so widely cited about the cross uh, in the decaying chapel at San Damiano, now in a, a chapel in Assisi, shown here in its present location. And he's in this derelict chapel praying, wondering what to do with his life. While his tear-filled eyes were gazing at the Lord's cross, he heard with his bodily ears a voice coming from that cross telling him three times, Francis, go and repair my house, which as you see is all being destroyed. This is a slight, slightly later account of the voice, but by three people who knew him well. And um, initially he understands it as being an instruction to repair the, ca the chapel, and he and his band um, rebuild the chapel at San Damiano. You can now see it um, repaired uh, hideously within a huge um, Baroque cathedral. Um, so this little chapel in the field has been contained within a massive building of elaborate and rich ornate decoration of a kind that would have horrified Francis. Um, but it's been preserved in, in this particularly um, strange way. Um, Later, he comes to understand the voice differently, not as a command to restore the building, but as a, a command to re restore the church, the church Catholic, the wider church. And many see him as being um, uh, an early reformer of the church, if you will. I jumped through, through a couple of hundred more years now to a figure who might be, well, I'm sure Nathan would have come across Hadiwich. Um, I don't know, Charles and, and Victoria, whether you have come across Hadiwich. She's um, theologically important as a 13th century mystic who has um, a particular kind of mystical experience focusing around the nature of love. She, she's one of the great love mystics. So her poetry, her prose, her visionary experiences are filled with accounts of her love affair with God. And for this reason, she's hugely important within the tradition, although little known outside um, specialist circles, perhaps. We don't even know really who she was. She's mid-13th century. We don't have a life of Hadiwich. Um, we think she lived in Antwerp. We know nothing about her personally but we do have her corpus of writings which have been preserved. And this slide is taken from uh, a recent film by um, a French filmmaker, um, completely unhistorical and unrelated to the, the historical account of, of Hadiwich, but um, a young nun who takes the name of Hadiwich as her religious name 
and who similarly is absorbed in the nature of a love affair with God and with people. And um, the filmmaker explores the mystical experience of this love affair through this modern Hadowitch um, getting it seriously wrong, doubting her own experience, getting involved with a terrorist group and uh, then being horrified at what she finds herself involved with, such as bec become her absorption in this um, mystical experience. But some things in the film actually are from the, the primary source text, and, and um, one of them is uh, a visionary experience that the original 13th century Hadowitch has wandering in a field when she's taken up into this um, mystical place where she's told the significance of a variety of trees which are um, metaphorically, symbolically, um, virtues of different kinds. The film is called Hadowitch, and it's unfortunately it's French with subtitles, which is very frustrating. But um, it's it's a very thought-provoking film. Um, so here she is, partway through this. Uh, first, now we have fourteen visions. There's a bit of numerology going on here. She clearly had more than fourteen visions, and she selected these fourteen for particular reasons. But this is vision number one, and she says. I was led as if into a meadow, an expanse that was called the space of perfect virtue. In it stood trees, and I was guided close to them, and I was shown their names and the significance of their names. The first tree had a rotten root, which was very brittle, but a very solid trunk. And above this bloomed a charming, very beautiful flower, but it was so frail that if a storm had ever blown up, this flower would have fallen and faded. He who guided me was an angel belonging to the choir of thrones. This is alluding to a medieval um, taxonomy of angelic beings, which needn't concern us here. Uh, the very ones who are charged with discernment. And this same day, this angel said, Human nature, understand and know what this tree is. And I understood, just as he revealed it to me, that the tree was knowledge of ourselves. Now, rather like Mary, um, Mary Neal, there is a voice here, human nature understood, understand and know what this tree is. But she knows what the tree is, not because the voice verbally, explicitly tells her what the tree is, but because she somehow knows in a more ineffable, um, non-verbal kind of way. So that's Hadwich. And then, of course, another conversational example well known to us all in, in Voice Club is Marjorie. I've just picked out one of her encounters here because it's a different kind of conversational encounter. Um, here we have her in, in red, in her own voice, speaking to Jesus in yellow, and then um, Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, responding to her later on in blue. So there's a three-way dialogue going on here which starts out in one form and then perhaps drifts into a different kind of voice. But they're, they're all voices. Um, Marjorie says, Jesus, what shall I think about? She's been encouraged to explore meditative prayer and she doesn't know how to do it. And Jesus replies, daughter, think of my mother, for she is the cause of all the grace that you have. And then at once Marjorie sees St Anne, allegedly the name of Mary's mother, um, and she prays St Anne to let her be her maid and to serve her and uh, so forth. And um, she says to um, the child that is born to Anne, my lady, you shall be the mother of God. The blessed child answered and said, I wished I were worthy to be the handmaiden of her that I should conceive the son of God. To which Marjorie says, I pray you, my lady, that if grace befall you, do not discontinue with my service. In other words, once you give birth to the Messiah, please keep me on as your servant. And um, then within a short space of time, we're fast forwarded into a point at which Mary has given birth to Jesus. And Mary says to Marjorie, daughter, now I have become the mother of God. And um, Marjorie says, I'm not worthy, my lady, to do you service, to which Mary replies, yes, daughter, follow me. I am well pleased with your service. So there's this interesting drifting in and out of 
what seem more like thoughts at some point during the dialogue, and at other points take the form of literal voices, and which are very condensed so that we, we jump through periods of time from before uh, Jesus is born until after Jesus is born, but the dialogue continues almost un uninterrupted across this um, disjointed time frame. We could study this in much greater depth. And I said at the beginning, to some extent I'm being a little bit superficial here. I'm, I'm wanting to jump across different examples from the tradition and, and look at what they might each teach us. But this is certainly an interesting kind of dialogical encounter with a voice. Here's another different one from more or less the ti same time frame, Joan of Arc. Um, Joan said that if she was in a wood, she easily heard the voices come to her. It seemed to her a worthy voice, and she believed it was sent from God. When she heard the voice a third time, she knew that it was the voice of an angel. The good thing is that we have incredibly detailed accounts of Joan's voices because she was interrogated in um, two or three different courts, most of which were very deeply unsympathetic to her. Um, Unfortunately, the downside of this is that we have hostile interrogators who are not sympathetic to the experience and who are trying to trap her and catch her out. But we do have extended trial narratives which tell us quite a bit about Joan's voices. And um, Evelyn Underhill, one of the great early commentators on this literature that we are considering, suggests that it's worthwhile to remind ourselves that the two women who have left the deepest mark upon the military history of France and England both acted under mystical compulsion. What um, Underhill doesn't say is that they both acted under the influence of voices, different kinds of voice hearing, but both Florence Nightingale and Joan of Arc were voice hearers and did what they did because of what the voices told them, at least in part. I think they also both believed passionately in the cause for other reasons, but, but they were reinforced in their belief because of the voice. And of course, the one, Joan of Arc, is frequently described as being deluded and hallucinated and suffering from mental illness. The other, Florence Nightingale, is um, canonised and um, no one can have a bad thing to say about Florence because she's transformed the way that British nursing looked, what, what we benefit from to this day is, is you know, very much down to the reforms that Florence introduced. So two characters whose voices were not mystical in the way of Haddowich or even Marjorie, the, these were women who believed that the voice had given them something to do, that they had to change the history of their respective nations. And we could go on. There are many, many more examples to explore. But I just, before we um, pause to reflect on this and then to, to talk about it together, I want to pick a, two or three instances, all drawn as it happens from the Carmelite tradition. I could have gone to other traditions of, of spirituality. Um, looking at a more, uh, a more ambivalent approach to the voice, Florence and Joan and Marjorie were all more or less accepting of the veracity of the experience and were affirming of it and were defensive of it um, when they were put on the spot. Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross and others from this tradition have been much more prepared to be critical of voices and visions. And here's Teresa um, talking about one of her own experiences um, while I was thinking that you justly permit that there be many, as I have mentioned, who are very good servants of yours, and yet do not have the mystical experiences, the religious experiences and favours that um, you, God, have granted me, because of what I am, you answered me, and here's the voice, serve me and don't bother about such things, is what the voice says to Teresa, paradoxically. In other words, continue with what I've given you to do, but don't bother about the voices and visions that I'm sending you. This was the first locution I heard you speak to me, and so I was very frightened. It's a terrifying experience for Teresa, as it was for many others uh, who had similar experiences. So she's disconcerted by it. it it's uh, an important experience for her, but paradoxically, the voice is 
essentially telling her not to worry about the voices. Don't place too much weight upon them. And she reflects in many other places upon um, her experiences, her own experiences, voices and visions and ecstasies in a similar kind of fashion. John of the Cross is much more abstract and much more analytic. It's difficult to pin down, well, I've found it difficult to pin down whether John ever heard a voice himself, but he clearly knew people who had. He was sought out for counsel and direction on these matters by many of the brothers and sisters in the order at the time. And he had huge experience of talking to people who believed that God was speaking to them or believed that they'd had visionary encounters, including Teresa, whom he respected and admired enormously, but also including younger sisters who were much less mature and discerning than Teresa and who were perhaps much more gullible. And he is um, profoundly critical of these experiences after the Augustinian model. He's clearly read Augustine. He clearly understands the Augustinian tradition taxonomy that Augustine offers and in particular he's down on what he calls supernatural knowledge reaching the intellect by way of bodily hearing. In other words out loud voices don't trust them ignore them pay no attention to them get on with your life and don't for one moment um, imagine that you're particularly holy or special because you've heard this voice heard this voice don't pay it a, a second thought. And he has at least six good reasons, which he discusses in some detail, as to why he argues this is the case. This is going beyond Augustine. Um, he thinks that to do so will diminish your faith. In other words, you'll come to rely upon the voice rather than upon faith uh, in an unseen God. He believes it will impede your spirit in some way which is difficult to grasp exactly, but um, we could come back to that. He thinks that you become very possessive of the experience. It's his uh, belief that sisters and brothers who've had these experiences and place a lot of weight on them then uh, become a bit full of themselves. You know, listen, listen to me, you know, let me tell you about my experiences, which of course also uh, leads to a loss of humility um, and to any potential benefit that you might have had from the experience in the first place and places you out of favour with God and makes you very vulnerable to being deceived by the devil. So he's got a very carefully argued um, list of reasons why he thinks you should ignore this. And if it has come from God and you ignore it, God won't mind because he'll understand and he'll know that you don't want to be deceived. But if it's come from the devil and you give it uh, too much attention, you're in big trouble. So basically ignore it. The voice, the vision, the special mystical experience. Don't give a second thought, get on with your life and uh, don't worry about it. And yet, others in the tradition seem to have done exactly the opposite of what he and Teresa encouraged. And there are a variety of examples I could give of this. Um, another Carmelite who's not very well known outside theological circles, but who's been thought to be quite significant is Maria um, of Mary Magdalene of Patsy. And um, an Italian, I can't remember exactly where Patsy is, perhaps someone else knows. Um, I've given her as an example uh, partly because she's left writings which are full of these conversational encounters with God, but also because there are some other examples within her corpus which are quite interesting. Now, actually most of this is not written down by Mary Maria herself. Most of it is written down by the sisters. Um, Maria Maddalena was actually a bit shy of leaving these writings for other people. She tried to destroy them at one stage, um, but then was told she shouldn't do that. She was very naughty, being a good sister, was obedient, and so um, didn't destroy them anymore. But every time she went into one of her ecstatic states, the other sisters were all gathering around and making notes about what she had said, and they kept a very detailed record, both of the ecstatic experiences themselves, what they observed and heard, and also their conversations with Maria afterwards. And here's one of these. This lasted from the 24th hour to the first hour, so they were up during the night listening to all of this and watching what went on. Suddenly she calmed down and appeared to be in one of her ecstatic states again. Later we asked her what she had been experiencing when she was shaking so intensively and crying so much that we feared that the devil himself was hitting her like St Anthony, another one of these allusions to this early desert experience of Anthony 
uh, a thousand years earlier. She kept saying, oh good Jesus, screaming, crying, shaking as if someone were hitting her. So they thought she was having the same kind of experience of Anthony, as Anthony of Egypt. She told us that no, she was not being hit, but she was hearing voices swearing in her ears so that she was compelled to shake as she did each time that she heard those swears. Not a very, a very clumsy translation here. Those swearers' voices terrified her, and we think that the Lord let her experience this to purge her, because that night he wanted to give her the great present of his wedding ring in order to marry her, as he had done to St. Catherine of Siena. Catherine of Siena being another example we could have looked at in a little bit more detail, who famously um, had a mystical experience of marriage to Christ, and then once she'd been married to Christ, everyone else wanted to have the same experience as uh, Catherine, and uh, amongst them, Marjorie Kemp um, was married to Christ in a particularly erotic kind of way, which she describes in her book. Here, um, the sisters are using this as an attribution of holiness upon Maria, that they think that she must be in the same uh, beatific category as Catherine of Siena uh, and Antony of Egypt. So by now, the hagiography is really kicking in. Everyone's copying everyone else's experiences. And when I say copying, I'm not um, imputing deliberate, you know, sort of um, a plagiarism. But um, one way or another, the experiences of key figures like Francis and Anthony and Catherine are influencing the way in which other experiences are now conveyed and interpreted by religious communities and by mystics themselves. Even, as in this case, within a Carmelite tradition, which actually is quite suspicious of these experiences in the first place. If John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila had been there, they'd have been saying, ignore her, let her get on with it, you know, let's focus on the things that really matter. But they're not, they're all gathering around, they're making notes, they're taking it down with bated breath. And just if we've got time, another very recent um, more or less contemporary example of uh, a similar but slightly different kind, Maria Faustina Kowalska, a Polish sister, who kept uh, an assiduous diary of her experiences, within which a voice plays a prominent part. Interestingly here, not visionary experiences, it's a voice almost exclusively, there are one or two visual experiences, um, but mostly it's a voice and it's on an almost daily basis at times. She has, rather like Marjorie, ongoing conversations with, um, with Jesus and with others. And these seem to have begun quite early. From the age of seven, she experiences this sense of call, vocation to religious life, and for the first time, hears a voice, an invitation to live a more perfect life. Here she is as a teenager. Once I was at a dance, probably in Lodz, with one of my sisters, while everybody was having a good time, my soul was experiencing deep torment. As I began to dance, I suddenly, there is a vision here, I suddenly saw Jesus at my side. Jesus, racked with pain, stripped of his clothing, all covered with wounds, who spoke these words to me. How long shall I put up with you and how long will you keep putting me off? At that moment, the charming mu music stopped and the company I was with vanished from my sight. There remained Jesus and I. And uh, there's another book by another 20th century um, mystic who also happens to be a nurse called Jesus and I, after this model, within which the diary is kept of regular conversational encounters with Jesus. So we have these voices, and as I say, in, in a sense, I've given you a rather superficial tour around a few of them. There are dozens more we could have explored, and we could have explored any one of them in quite a lot of depth. Each of them deserves a PhD to be written. Many of them have had lots of PhDs written about them already. Some of them are surprisingly neglected. And, uh, for example, the last um, one that I mentioned to you is relatively um, free from academic analysis. We've, we've got these hagiographical popular accounts of Maria's spirituality, but relatively little critical attention to her experiences. And it seems to me that there's great diversity of experience here, and there are some interesting things that we might want to focus on. Many of the voices are associated with visionary experiences, but some of them are not. Some of them are just a voice. Some of them are referred to as the voice. It's clearly Jesus, or it's clearly someone else, but um, 
it's referred to by the individual as the voice. The voice says this, the voice says that. And yet others are deeply embedded in a primarily visual experience within which the voice is almost incidental and um, beside the point. We have the Augustinian taxonomy creeping in again and again and, and variations on that theme, slightly different rewritings of it, as in Julian, for example, which I think is a, a different taxonomy, but it's nonetheless similar to Augustine. We have the dialogical form, we have the more monological form, and we have the more practical voices of um, Joan and Florence, and then we have the much more pious and introverted experiences of someone like Hadowich, um, who internally is engaged in a deep love affair with, with Christ, um, but outwardly is cloistered, confined to a particular place. And um, we don't even have an account of her life. We, we know little about what she actually did, only about what she thought. And then mostly we have attribution of these voices to God, either directly or indirectly. Joan's voices, of course, were mostly indirect. It was St. Michael and St. Catherine that were talking to her uh, much of the time. Um, in other places, it is very clearly an angelic um, or a saintly voice, a, a spirit, a, a human voice of some kind. Um, and in other places, much less commonly and invariably unpleasantly, um, it's a demonic voice, it's an evil voice that the person perceives. So if we wish to be a bit Freudian about this, the unpleasant stuff is projected out there onto the voice and what's retained inwardly is more holy and saintly and, and pure. But it, it's by no means um, always one mould and people like Marjorie hear the demonic voice earlier on but then later are preoccupied completely with their encounters with, with Christ and with various saints and angels. So that there's a great variety of different voices, different sources, um, different kinds of voice. And I'm still reflecting, I have to, to be honest with you, this is a project in progress, I'm still reflecting on what all of this means and, and where we go with it and what the implications of it are. I think it's fascinating in its own right and I can just sit there in Starbucks or Pret um, enjoying reading the text for its own sake, but but what does it mean? You know, what, what does it mean for theology, for um, for our project on voice hearing? What does it mean for clinical and pastoral care? I think um, it raises the question of what voices mean to the people who hear them, and it's relatively unusual in my experience that people hear voices of a spiritual religious kind and it's meaningless. They just ignore it and get on with their lives. They don't pay much attention to John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila. It's, it's meaningful to them. And sometimes it's easy to have sympathy for that, like with Florence Nightingale, for example, because here is someone whose voice transformed her life and indirectly our world. You know, she's left us with something enormously valuable, and it started with a voice. In other cases, I struggled to find value in what people have heard, but they still found value in it. So what does it mean? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? And arising out of that, how do we discern the difference between the two? Now, here is where the theological literature really hits, the rubber hits the road, and um, I can't get onto that now, but colleagues, including colleagues in my own department, have written extensively about this and there's a rich literature to mine in terms of how we discern authentic revelation from inauthentic revelation and that's something I think that, that would merit much more attention. But the much, much more neglected um, debate to be had here I think is about the ongoing literature on science and religion, science and theology. As you probably know, our colleague here in Durham, David, uh, David Wilkinson, has written extensively on this. Um, uh, John Polkinghorne over in Cambridge is uh, famous, won the Templeton Prize for his literature on this ongoing engagement between science and religion. And yet, it almost exclusively focuses on key things like quantum physics, chaos theory, the Big Bang, evolution, uh, that there are pet themes which students of science and religion wheel out time and again as their example of how theology and science could more seriously and coherently engage with one another in a 
less than Dawkins-like crudity. Um, but they rarely or never address these interesting questions where we have you know, some seriously exciting scientific research going on at the present time, along with multidisciplinary engagement from colleagues in English, philosophy, history, and other disciplines, and theology. And yet, the, the science and theology debate has not taken account of this at all. And I think that this could be one area in which our project uh, could have something really interesting to contribute to the current debate. I've talked to David about this and, and he agrees with me and we're thinking about what we might do on that front. There are probably other questions as well. I mean, these are just some of the preliminary things which I think would be worthy of some more time and trouble. And I hope over the next four years I'll get to do that. So. Um, I'm opening up some of my questions, some of my inner voices, and you probably have your own questions, and I'm happy to receive those now. Thank you. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts produced by Hearing the Voice, you can visit our website at hearingthevoice.org or join us on Twitter at Hearing Voice.